It's the green majority you're listening to here at CIT 9.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as our international uh, extraterrestrial podcast listeners. Very appreciated one and all, except the podcast listeners who are slightly more appreciated. Yes. Stefan, now you may talk. All right. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, we've got a, we've got a packed show for you today. Uh, we are, we're going to be talking to Sabrina Bowman, uh, from Greenpack, uh, about the, the hundred different, uh, climate debates, uh, that, that is being planned. Uh, we are going to talk, uh, to our resident, uh, circle, circular economy expert, uh, in Kim D'Olivera about, uh, about some of the, first we're going to, we're going to discuss a little bit about the, the liberal plan, um, around, uh, around some of the work towards uh, creating a circular economy. Now, I will say that spoiler alert: uh, it's not uh, not great. It's it's the, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a Sorry plan. About that. No worries. Uh, it's the beginning of a plan uh, or beginning of something. Uh, but obviously, needs a framework. So we're talking about sort of what a true full experience would look like, um, and um, uh, and and we're gonna get we're gonna get there. Um, well, well we, we're, we're going to hope we're going to get there. So that's the last section. We'll talk about circular economy, uh, about plastics, about about the right to repair, and about the, what the Trudeau government is doing trying to get us there. Allow me to just adjust my microphone very brutally here. All right. Mm, there right. it is. There you go. There it is. All right. So we're in studio uh, with with Dave, <laughs> as always. Um, and so the, way the first off the top of the show, we got a couple news stories. Um, and, and the first one is uh, is all about uh, – it's a story that came across, uh, across my desk um, – uh, but a week ago, someone shared it, and it's it's I would say it's vaguely related to the environment, and I'll sort of get into into why I think it's so important. But it was one of the things that I felt like as soon as I read it, I just felt like people had to know about it a little bit. Um, and so it's about it's about agriculture and sorry, take it away, Dave. Yes, uh, <laughs> I didn't want you to spoil my my whole spiel here. Sorry, I'm sorry. So, uh, food systems geographer Stian Rice out of the University of Maryland published an article in The Conversation in June detailing the return of prison labor to the agricultural sector in the United States since anti-immigrant policies are diminishing the supply of documented and undocumented migrant workers. States and prisons are now making quite a bit of money by leasing their convicts out to food growers who are themselves paid little to nothing for their grueling work. And yet, uh, that's the, uh, the convicts that are paid little to nothing for their grueling work. The growers are making money. And yet, even while inmates are paid 3 to $4 an hour, and sometimes actually nothing, 33% of non-convict farm workers who make around $11 an hour are already living below the poverty line. Rice shows that historically in the U.S., prison labor combined with a racist justice system to ensure the continuing enslavement of large portions of the black population long after slavery had been abolished. While he doesn't use the word slavery to describe the practice, he points out that in the late 1800s, states were able to make huge profits off of prison labor. 80, uh, states were able to make huge profits off of prison labor, and 88% of the prison labor in the state of Georgia were black uh, between 1870 and 1910. Then whites got angry that cheap prison labor was taking their jobs away, and some restrictions were put in place. Then companies in the U.S. started using inmates as cheap manufacturing labor in order to compete with foreign companies, and the agriculture sector started employing more and more migrant workers. Now, with fewer migrant workers available, Americans are relying on prison labor for cheap food, while the prisoners work long hours in brutal conditions being exposed to poisonous chemicals. 
prisoners are not allowed to organize for better conditions and are not considered employees, so they have very few rights. Rice points out that blacks are six times more likely to be incarcerated than whites, and as convict leasing has returned over the past 50 years, the black incarceration rate has quadrupled. People try to argue that it gives inmates useful experience, but that flimsy and hideous line of argument, argument may only apply to white prisoners anyway, who are generally given the higher paying and more useful jobs. So, yeah. So this is, this is, there's a, there's a number of things here. So it, A, um, is one of these experiences in which when you learn about something uh, as sort of hideous as, and it was, it's not like there's, this has not been known, obviously, you know, prison labor has been used for many things uh, over the years. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, and I think it's always, there's, there's, it never feels great. Uh, you know, we, I think, I don't know if it's on this show or if, or if, or other places, you know, talked about sort of some of the truly ridiculous lengths that some different, uh, states have gone to, 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 to exploit, uh, the use of prison labor. You know, I think Louisiana, uh, has their entire cleaning staff for their state capital and cooking staff for most of their buildings that are that run state run are convicts. Um, you know, these are, how much did you say? In, like I think it's their entire cleaning staff and, and like it's oh. yeah like they're wow. yeah it's yeah. it and and when and then there's a, a video clip of of the uh of the sheriff uh of uh one of the sheriffs of of, of the space being asked um uh, uh or, or there was a there was a position that there was sent to like to allow um to allow people nonviolent offenders to leave prison early um and and his response was that well then who would we get to do all the things and this was like the sheriff response to whether or not they should let nonviolent offenders out wow. you know uh, and, and so it's it's a little it's it's not it's not new uh, but it's horrendous um, and 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 this particular aspect of it especially given the sort of what's you know the the fact that we're seeing it increase as uh, as you see the as you see Trump's um, sort of uh, sort of push against against uh, undocumented immigrants um, who were previously the exploited people to use towards this um, it goes back to this thing about agriculture which is that historically um, it has been uh, consistent that it has relied on on exploitable labor you know that has been a, a fact about uh, you know in, in here in Canada you know if you look up what happens to 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 the uh, to the migrants uh, who who are who are given limited work uh, permits uh, to come into to Canada uh, to work uh, it's similar type of thing you know it's similar you're finding people you can pay less than minimum wage you don't have you can send them home if they if they get injured um, and they don't have the organizing rights necessary to to move forward um, if they get injured you just say you're deported now yeah basically yeah, you just reject their work visa and then they, when they way they go um, and 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 these are you know and and so and so this is this is a central like the fact that you know we talk about we often talk about about the sort of difficulty and the negativity and the and the destruction caused by the clothing industry but the food industry is 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 not better well the the, the author of this article Stian rice points out that or he says that the american food industry relies upon this cheap later labor and right. i want or the american food system he says the very food yeah. system but i wonder what he means by food system 
Like, does he mean that you know people will not be able to afford food if they don't not use this cheap labor, or simply the profits will be fewer, and then so it'll be more difficult to run the business? I'm, I'm not sure quite where the critique comes in on that. Well, well, I think there's there's a number of of weird things there, right? Like the the first is you know how much food is constantly wasted by mm. by our society. You know, we want food cheap enough to waste. That's 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 unquestionable. I think, mm-hmm. um, and obviously there are people who can barely afford food, and so that so there's people who 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 would which a increasing food prices would directly harm, and you have to pay you have to work to ensure those people. But but to make those people's only way of surviving to be reliant on the exploitation of other people's labor uh, is, is 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 creating a system that is that is. In, uh, that is just awful, you know. Like you can't, you can't defend that system, you know. That to to, work, to use the to use the marginalized people who can barely afford food as the argument to why you need to further marginalize a separate separate set of people uh, to make the food as cheap as possible is is a terrible system. And the the statement, I mean, the the author is certainly. Um, um Sympathetic to the and is and is, and is all obviously writing, writing this piece in order to highlight the plight yes. and exploitation, but the the use of the term you know the food system relies upon cheap labor hides in it an implication that uh, there's some justification to the che- to the need for cheap labor in the agricultural industry right. Well, and well, and, and what's what's fascinating, of course, is that even with you know even with this exploitable labor that exists, um, we still do not see uh, the ability for uh, for 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 organizations. Uh, or some of the people for the companies that run a lot of these a lot of these 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 large larger farms, um, or these, or especially in certain things like soy and and corn, um, they're still not making. Uh, they're still they're they're not they're not making the money from, from selling that product, you know, like they're making the money from guaranteed purchasing from the government, you know, like the, the farm bill that which I've used a bunch of times to talk about this on the show is, is designed in a way, uh, to subsidize massively subsidize the production of some of these particular crops that are sort of like that are, that are just easy to grow and on mass really. Um, and then though, then those products end up being the things that are in everything. You know, you wonder why you see glucose fructose everywhere. It's because it's so, 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 so cheap, uh, to get, to get, to get, um, to get sugar, uh, or to get, to, to get the, it as a sugar substitute specifically. And, and, and then you get those products being the only thing that the people who, who are, are currently marginalized being exploited um, can afford, uh, and that causes a series of health problems, and and, and, and it creates this. We've created like we've created a vicious loop, uh, all of which is 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 designed on on exploitation of, of not only the workers uh, but of the of the of the people who are you now using as the argument as to why you cannot increase food standards, yeah, or the health of that food, right? Yeah, these people can simply can't afford healthy food. They can't afford not to have everything infused with corn syrup yeah, goes, goes we, the argument yeah exactly but be, and, and then and so yeah and so then you you can't you couldn't pay these other people a living wage because then these people couldn't afford the food it's like no just make sure that everyone can afford food like that's not a you know we live in a society that wastes something like 40 percent of our food we are like there has it's, not it's been 51 51 yeah there has by been, the time you eat it from the place it gets grown it's 51 percent. yeah there, there there has not been a uh a actual famine in, in, in the world that has not been an economic famine mm-hmm. uh, in like 25, 30 years. You know, like the, the famine doesn't exist in the way that we think about it. It exists entirely under the economic system. You know, people, it's not that food isn't there, it's people can't afford the food. And that's, and that's the reality. And, you know, and so it's like, it's, it's this, it's this sort of vicious circle that people are using to, 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 to justify exploitation on both sides. 
Yeah, no. So just uh, so the the loop quickly as well, because you, you I wanted to close the loop because you missed the the last thing on the end there of the, of how the loop gets closed, right? Which is so. Uh, you know, we subsidize this uh, corn because we want to make cheap corn oil. And then what happens is the economy grows around things that you incentivize, right? And this is this is the direct correlation to oil, right? Corn oil, oil. Very similar. Not in reality, but as far as this explanation goes, right? So you have this cheap oil and then your economy springs up. Okay, now there's cheap oil. You have an economy in which there is now cheap corn oil. So businesses spring up to take advantage of this thing, right? So now you have Coca-Cola who's using corn oil in their in their pop, which is now sold everywhere and all over the world. Now, while we have to keep these things low because now this company can't make money because their entire business was built on the idea that corn oil was cheap. So we have to keep it cheap. And oh, by the way, uh, government, can you please subsidize our workers because we can't pay them enough because they can't afford to eat, right? And we don't want to raise prices because then people couldn't afford it. You mean the people that you're paying? It's the same people, right? And right. that's the part that needs to get closed. And 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 I just re- it needed to be reiterated because that's the part, right? That's the that's the trick, is that the reason that prices can't go up is because people can't afford it is because of them. Yeah, yeah. When you talk about you know quote unquote welfare recipients, how many of them are actually employed by some of these large organizations? <laughs> it's it's a huge percentage. You know, like the the government is a, is it indirectly subsidizing Walmart because how how many Walmart employees have to be on food stamps? Let the the richest one of the richest families in the on the entire planet Earth. Yeah, and a massive subset of their employees are subsidized by the government. The government pays part of Walmart's staffing costs every year and they're still in poverty it's disgusting yeah so we have we have we have one other story that I just want to that that uh, that we'll just sort of get to go, let's go to another another vicious circle yes another circle and yeah, food yeah. and then we'll get a music break in terms of mangoes so a new study undertaken by the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences has found that communities protected by larger areas of mangroves fared substantially better in cyclones than those protected by smaller mangroves the study, which is the first of its kind, uh, used an approach to compare cyclo- cyclone timelines with the fluctuating nighttime luminosity of, close to, of coastal communities. The study uh, has provided the first hard evidence of mangroves' ability to, amelior- to ameliorate the effects of extreme weather events on communities. Not that there weren't already several very good reasons for protecting mangroves. The above-ground root systems, for instance, sustain fish nurseries and many other species unique to the mangrove environment. Mangroves also provide a source of food and business for people living in and around them, and they are highly productive carbon sinks, making up 10 to 15% of coastal carbon capture, despite covering just 5% of coastal areas around the world. Unfortunately, they are disappearing quickly, largely due to human activity. And on top of this, this human activity is sometimes itself fueled by the effects of climate change. As Adam Mulno's article on mangroves in the conversation explains, quote, in Bangladesh, for example, Rice agriculture is increasingly impossible as fields are flooded with seawater. One, commu- one way communities are adapting to is to shift production to shrimp farms. Booming shrimp aquaculture, however, ironically requires further mangrove clearance to create space. Loss of mangrove protection from cyclones then worsens coastal deterioration. End quote. This economic environmental feedback loop highlights the need for wealthy countries like Canada to make aid to countries in the global south a priority of our environmental policy. For as the effects of climate change interact with the harsh realities of, of harsh economic realities of many communities, the only option is often one that eschews environmental concerns for matters of bare necessity. In other words, if you don't have money, it's difficult to take the environment into account. Yeah, and and, and, and this is where you end up in these in this sort of 
question about how you deal with the fact that, um, you know, the, the, so so finally, uh, I can announce that that uh, next week we'll be playing uh, our our interview uh, with Mara Passan from from our time, and about sort of, I mean, the, the interview really focuses on sort of you know. Uh, how we get to this Green New Deal and, and what a Canadian Green New Deal can look like and, and, and what we can do. And I think what's interesting to note about it specifically is is the fact that we have, um, we, we're in a moment right now where we spent, we spent 10 years, the environment movement was sort of just like, just basically begging anyone who'd listen to put a price on carbon. And that was sort of the, that was sort of the push. And in, la, in the last couple, I think there's been this realization that that, a is not a a very uh, salient feeling that other people experience, but also B that that it's not it doesn't give people something to hold on to. You know, people don't, can't envision a world uh, that that's changed by that. And so we've moved towards this much more holistic response. And I think the holistic response is an answer to this constant question. You know, of of how you solve the problem that you know if you don't have the the capital, it's really hard to take you know environmental things seriously. And because the previous answer of of just putting a price on carbon would sort of shift things around a fair amount, but it could still be used as a part of eco-austerity, right? You could easily use this as a part of a way to push this sort of agenda of, of, of further austerity and, and further marginalization of people, uh, all in the name of environmental friendliness. And I think the Green New Deal sort of breaks us past that and says, okay, let's make sure these people have jobs that they feel okay, and let's make their jobs related to actually restoring the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that sort of shift has become so important and as, is the reason why people can actually take it a little more, a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it, is a, it ends up being a much more important thing. But uh, but uh, Sabrina Bowman has arrived, and so I do want to go to music break so we can get her into the room so we can talk about uh, the the debates. Uh, so, Saren, uh, what are we listening to? The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5. Oh, I just went up an octave. Yeah, there you go. Let me try that again. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community partners, as well as the intergalactic listeners. Appreciate it. They love us. They love us. All the best mail comes from our international uh, interspace uh, listeners. Yes. They, uh, the, it, honestly, the, the space mailmen are, or space mail people are uh, really great. Very efficient. Yes. Um, uh, so uh, we are here, uh, again, packed show today uh, with Sabrina Bowman uh, from Green Pack. So thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Um, uh, and this is a yeah, this is a this is a great uh, a great time to start talking about this because because uh, next week uh, we have an interview again uh, with Amara Passan from Our Time, um, and it's all sort of what Canadians and Canada is doing uh, leading up towards uh, towards the elections. Um, and Green Pack has been around for uh, at least since the last election. I think you might have been the previous four, but you can correct me if I'm not wrong. Uh, but can you just let our listeners know uh, what Green Pack is and what you do? Yeah, sure. So we were uh, basically right. We were actually created in 2014. So our first election was federal 2015. Um, And we were created for a number of reasons. Uh, One was to kind of fill this space when elections happen for environmental people, organizations, people who care about the environment to get engaged. Um, And I I should actually really start by saying what, what, who we are, what we do. So we we um, nominate, support, endorse um, candidates who are running for office in all major pol- political parties uh, who are demonstrated environmental champions. And what we mean by that is that they have shown in some way that they uh, have taken action on the environment. So it could be everything from a uh, you know, corporate leader doing sustainability in a 
giant company or it could be somebody doing grassroots activism on pipeline work. Um, we don't look at what they promise. We look at what they've actually done. Mm. And um, the way that we work is that once we have picked our small number of candidates, we drive donations of time and money towards our campaigns to help them win. And the idea is that they'll bring their values of environmental leadership with them when they go to the Hill and work within their party and across uh, party lines to, to push for progressive environmental change. Cool. Great. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And so, yeah. So I, 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 it, so last election you sort of came out and you had like a list of, of candidates that you, that you sort of supported. Um, and, and now you've actually sort of been around for, for five years. And so you actually have had a little more time to sort of, you know, uh, to grow and to, and to expand your, your work and your strategies. Um, and so I'm curious a, a, to sort of know how, what you sort of learned from the first, uh, first experience. Um, and then, and then we'll get into sort of what you're doing uh, this time around. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, the first experience, uh, and, su and subsequently, we've done three provincial elections okay. as well. And, uh, you know, a couple of things. One is, you know, you're doing your job right when every political party accuses you of partisanship. <laughs> so we've been accused by everybody of working for another team. Right. Um, because we endorse from all major political parties, our, our, our model is very much multipartisan. So we won't endorse if we can't find a champion in one of the major parties. Hmm. Um, uh, the other thing is that we have, it seems to have a very broad appeal um, in a time when partisanship is so rampant and the House of Commons increasingly, you know, I've been reading a lot of books about democracy recently and um, the failures of democracy in particular in the House of Commons and the lack of civility and the lack of uh, conversation and how that has actually changed quite a lot over the past number of years in a not a good direction. Right. That we sort of offer an opportunity to get engaged that is <clears throat> that, that sort of looks at the bigger picture of how do we make change happen on the Hill. And, and the reality that <clears throat> there, there's a number of groups and academics and businesses out there that are doing fantastic work on the environment and have a whole lot of solutions for the problems we're facing in climate change primarily, but, you know, lack of, con of biodiversity, conservation, et cetera. So we want to put, though, the people in office who want to listen to those solutions. Hmm. Because it's a lot harder to push uphill, right, if you if you don't have anybody to talk to. We want to put the door openers in who are going to, in all parties, going to want to open the door to hear those solutions. Um, and and I, th I found that, that the, the sort of multipartisanship and, and the what we're doing specifically, people really like the idea. They're really excited about um, finding this different way to engage. And this different way to kind of hack democracy. Our first-past-the-post system is part of the reason why we got established. It doesn't allow us to have people elected who represent what we care about. Right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's interesting. We've been talking a lot about in in, in recent weeks uh, this well, and as a conversation I sort of have been, have been myself having uh, has been sort of about how how hard it is right now uh, to see the government as as an organizing structure. You know, uh, like like you, like you would any other organization, right? Like any other organization, you know, has like you know, if would have feedback structures where people where the, where people could consistently impact things, and it feels like government, while being the largest one, is also the one that feels the most opaque. You know, the one that feels like you know, like like you know, the the way that you know you you can come up, you can run on a platform saying we will change the way we do elections, and then you don't is is the way you convince people that that that. It, this is not a transparent system. That there's not actually a way to to really impact things. Um, and so you've you've come around again, and, and you've got this this sort of big bold action that you're that you're taking undertaking right now. And I think it's one of these things that is, I, I, I what I love about the idea is that it feels simultaneously big and bold, but also kind of small in in grassroots at the same time. So you can tell us about the the hundred climate debates. Yeah. So this is something that we have not done. In fact, this is something that has never been done in Canada. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like so many things that with Green Pack where we sit around and someone says, oh, hey, 
here's something interesting that we could do. And because we're quite small and relatively nimble, um, we do tend to latch on to big ideas. So this big idea is that we wanted to run 100 all-candidates debates on one day before the federal election. Um, and and that they would all happen on the same day because we want it to be a moment mm-hmm. in the election. I mean, I don't think that you'll find any argument from probably anybody you've talked to. And certainly, you know, um, I, I can see it. This is a climate election. Right. Um, uh, this has been climate has been a huge platform for the liberals. Um, it's a it's a huge piece of conversation. Andrew Shear talked about it, you know, a couple weeks ago. They sort of preview the platform, and and you know, this is going to be a major issue. But how do we keep it from becoming a political football hmm. rather than a, a real conversation? So so the hundred debates is all on one day, um, October seventh across the country. Um, They're organized by local people, local groups and local people across the country. We are providing sort of a national support system. So we have some organizers, we have a portal of tools, we have resources for people to be able to put together press releases, how do you get your politicians to your debate, all that stuff. Um, But but really the effort is is purely local. Mm. Um, And uh, we wanted to make this a conversation. So that's why they're nonpartisan too. We will be inviting all the major parties, all the organizers have signed on to that. because we actually do think that um, even if, you know, some people have more to say than others, some parties have more to say than others on climate, let's give them an opportunity to have that conversation. Um, let's make, and we wanted to make it as open as possible so that if any of the parties decide not to show up, right. we can say, well, we really tried. Like, we have four debate questions that we're asking all the organizers to use. They don't have to, but we're asking them to use them. And those questions were passed by um, people across the political spectrum mm. for their opinions on whether or not they would you know, be like, this is a question you can answer. And there are four different environmental issues to create that space for that conversation. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so, so this is interesting because like there are, do you, so this is, it betrays my ignorance. Uh, do you know how many ridings there are in Canada? 300, there were 338, but I have to, I can't remember if there was an increase in the last session. Right, so, so we're looking maybe for... 376. Okay. Maybe 376. I think okay. that sounds better. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> I, a, should, I should know too. Yeah, there's, like it's amazing how much I, I know about other things and not like simple things like that. Like that feels like a thing I should just know. But um, so you're, you're looking for anywhere between about, th- about 30% of, 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 of candidates will be invited to a meeting. To a meeting. And what I love about this is that it's so far in advance. Yeah. Like, there's no way that you can pretend that you were it was too late to have you oh I had another thing that day you know it's like we invited you four or five months in advance so like plan to take that day off you know like or, or be there like you're, you're making the decision now really if you are in a shelter yeah. or not well that's exactly it and you know Savannah that's a great point and it was one of the reasons why we got out so early out of the gate mm-hmm. was that we knew that this could be you know we didn't have time we didn't know no, no we're, we've told the parties like that we've already been touched with all four major parties we've told them that this is happening we've told them the date so really at this point it's only a decision on whether or not you know whether or not they decide to send their candidates in fact you know in some in some parties candidates aren't even nominated yet the right. majority of candidates are not nominated yet in two of the four parties so yeah. you know we still we're getting in as early as possible to yeah they can't say I you know I had to do my hair yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah you know these are these are different things right yeah exactly yeah. um uh, so, Sorry, I actually just wanted to ask a question. I'm trying. I try not to interrupt during guests, Come but on I, in. I have a question. Um, yeah. So, uh, following that, I, it occurs to me that, like, often. So, I'm thinking back of a quote Stefan uh, told me uh, from someone that he heard it from about the a climate campaigner going and talking to the politician is that I love your presentation, but you've offered me a solution to a problem I don't have. And the, what he meant by that was that, uh, like, the, no one's going to vote for me 
for doing this and and only people will vote against me. This doesn't motivate positive votes. So uh, on that mm. line, my question for you is, has there been any effort or thought or discussion? I'm just curious, like, has it cr- crossed the thinking of uh, the folks in your part of the community um, around the idea of g- incentivizing people who may be disinclined, like the conservatives, by actually driving their voters to go and saying, you know, your constituents want to hear from you on these issues? And it, it has that... It, just sort of blank slate. Is that a conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think it would really come down to the local the local groups who, to be quite honest, know better their community than we ever could. So for us to sort of suggest that it would, you know, we want them to 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 be able to drive uh, to drive their people. Um, it's an interesting question. I think um, I think it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out with the local organizers. And certainly, I think that. Um, Having the riding level debates, the whole reason for that was to show the politicians that this actually is an issue of interest in their communities. I mean, ideally, every debate has like 300 people in it. I don't know if that's going to happen, but we really want to make sure that they know. And 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 in some places, it may not matter, but I think that like we are really looking also for an active balance of, of urban versus rural, a party split. You know, in the next number of months, we're going to be really reaching out you know, even further across the country to f- try to find different kinds of community communities put these right these um, these efforts in yeah and, and I think what I what I find so interesting about this particular uh, way of going about uh, this is that so often in in Canadian and I, what, what I like about it a little bit is that it almost it, it sort of fundamentally undermines the sort of way we currently experience Canadian politics right like the fact that it is a hundred uh, individual debates, and each individual person hopefully is saying their own individual experiences with this issue, um, is so counter to to our experience of of, of what what governing looks like, which is basically um, you know the leaders just dictate whatever, and everyone else gets gets whipped into votes, right? And so it's what I find so interesting about this is that it's not. You know, like there's, I know there's actually is a push right now for for there to be a CBC hosted uh, climate debate uh, amongst the leaders, and you know, and we're seeing the Sunrise Movement really push for a climate debate amongst the DNC participants. Um, but the idea that that every candidate has to sort of personally re- re- relate to this, you know, it 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 it, it almost feels like you are. Uh, Telling them that they matter in a way that 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 society doesn't currently see them as matter. Like backbench MPs, you know, in many ways are not seen as useful existences uh, in in our in our democracy beyond sort of the stuff they do within their constituency. And so to have them be sort of like, okay, what do you think about climate change? To me, is a is a fundamental shift in the way they could see themselves. I really actually, it's funny. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I really like that. And and I will say though that 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 does point to something that um, is why Green Pack exists because a lot of we and I'll, in the broader you know question, a lot of things that we hear people say to us is like, why are you picking a single candidate? When they get elected, they're going to be in the backbench and they're going to be party whipped and they're not going to do anything. But what we've seen in the past is that legislation does get passed by people working together across their party lines. And it's not the front runners. It's not the prime minister. It's not the leader of the opposition. It's the people on the backbench who are talking together. And I think that I think that it's important for them to feel that too. The other piece of this that um, we're hoping to do, and I, I don't know technologically if we'll be able to do this in all of the debates, we'd like to get them filmed mm. and then have that accessible after the debate so people can go back to their candidate, whoever wins, and say, hey, remember in the debate you said this thing? 
There are there is also some evidence that, that points to this idea that when um, candidates say things at debates, that that will sometimes get rolled into their future plans. So I think that there's you know, a whole opportunity around the individual empowerment of the candidates and also the empowerment of local groups afterwards to be able to hold um, whoever gets elected to account. Yeah, and, and I, I, I find something that we've been talking a lot about a lot, uh, and I think what comes up when you talk about sort of the Green New Deal as a, as a conversation uh, to me is, is how much it, I think, needs to feel like and how much people are pushing it to feel like a, that we're all in this, we're all working on it uh, collectively. You know, like it's such a huge transition that like if you don't get 80% of society feeling like they're at least somewhat involved in this, you know, then you're not really, then the transition won't need to be effective. And, and I think what's interesting about sort of this, this this way of of, of going about uh, about going about the politician side of it is it sort of also means like no all of you are also now this you know like you your your you were on stage amongst your constituents and you said you would do this you know and and so like I feel like if we're really going to have that groundswell you almost need this you need these the, the 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 individual people in their communities to come to their, back to the communities and be like okay we we've passed this thing like you know let's talk you know like what's interesting is all these different movements from ex, from the extinction rebellion uh, you know to, to other things they sort of also centralize this sort of need for communities to come together and talk about how they solve this problem together and and this and the way of of bringing these MPs forward and be like okay you're the leader of this community bring these conversations together um, feels like an important step on that process. Yeah, you know, you're totally right. There's a really interesting thing happening now where the movements are, you know, talking a lot more about the environmental movement, I think, is talking a lot more about intersectionality, um, justice, and um, and recognizing that, the, that, it, that, like, we have 11 years and we need everybody in every sector doing everything possible. And and honestly, there are some champions in our politicians, and there, but for the, by and far, we are dragging our, our politicians, yeah. you know, who are behind us forward, right? And, and you know, when you have the Bank of Canada saying like, "Hey, we just joined a you know an international financial group to talk about climate change because obviously you know it's, it's you know this is going to be a huge problem for us," and they're farther ahead than the politicians. Um, it it begs the question of, of what's going on. Um, but I do think that you know that on the other side of this, the more positive side is that politicians are also people in their communities and they run for office for the most part because they care. We sometimes forget this about politics because we don't like <laughs> politics. We're like, oh, those people are all, you know, jerks who don't, you know, just like power and money. Sure, there's some who do, but I have met a lot of like incredibly dedicated politicians who ran because they cared about their community. They don't always see the way that care plays out. They don't always see the solutions as being, you know, the same, but they care. And I think that when we when we link people in their community to the politicians and remind them what's important, um, that can continue to create that sort of sense of community and, and community-based movement building. So, yeah, for sure. I yeah. think it's very cool. It's very positive. Yeah. Um, uh, and so uh, and so so if people are excited about getting getting into this uh, or, or helping with these debates or, you know, uh, we we are syndicated in some places across Canada. So this might, you know, there are some people in, on Tuesdays, I think it's in Halifax. So uh, so if there are people across Canada who want to help with this, uh, how can they do that? Yeah, we'd love to have you involved. We need as many people to come out as possible, both organizing debates and attending. Uh, 100debates.ca, then number 100debates.ca. You can sign up there. You can put your postal code in. You can see where all the debates are, and you can get involved. We'd love you to join now. We'll be continuing to build over the summer. And mark your calendar now, October 7th. That's when the debates are going to be. Yes, October 7th uh, is, is uh, also, fun fact, uh, Dave's birthday. 
Oh, happy it birthday, is. Dave. We'll oh. make sure that all of that, that gets rolled into the script for the debate organizer. Wonderful. Yeah, one yeah. of the questions, the fifth question is, will you all sing Dave happy birthday? That's the fifth question yeah. required yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100 debates. On air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Five-part choir. Yeah. So, then, yeah. so then when they get into the, when, we get, when, when they get in, we can just be like, back in this debate, you sang Dave specifically happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. How do you respond to Where that Where are your now? Dave-centered right. policies yeah, now? Exactly. <laughs> before, before we transition out of this section, I had one more, but I wanted to wait to the end. So, uh, but Sabrina, it's a comment, but I, it's a comment I want your response from. Okay. So I, uh, the serious, serious comment. Uh, I have CBC connections, but none of them in the politics side. They're all on the entertainment, TV, media, journalism side. Um, if we have, if you or anyone in your network has any even tangential connection to anyone that's involved with those CBC debates, here is how you reset the Canadian uh, climate discussion in Canada with one simple step. Before you ask any, uh, all the parties for their climate policy or their environment policy or any question about the environment, ask them to define climate change. Because when you hear their plan followed by them in their own words explaining how they understand the problem that they're then proposing a problem to, that will significantly shift people's interpretations of it. Because there's a lot of people out there who are picking it uh, not be uh, because they like the sound of the the confidence of the solution and the commitment, but they also the voter also doesn't really understand climate change. Or there's people who really do understand, maybe do understand climate change, but are just politically deluded and and think that the conservative plan is real, right? So when you actually hear, here's what I understand about the problem before they propose their solution i think that would i think you would see a drastic voter uh, voter intention shift after hmm. that debate i can't tell you where it would go but i guarantee you there would be 20 points from somewhere going somewhere else absolutely guarantee thoughts before we go to music break I think you guys should you guys should get somebody from each of the parties and ask them that question. <laughs> That's what I'd like to see. Better, I'd be super interested. Better, I would listen. To better that suggestion. Episode. Get me to be the debate host, and we're gonna have a real good time. <laughs> so we are. This debate's already Dave centric. Can't be you centric too. <laughs> well, still sing Happy sing Birthday to Dave at the beginning of the debate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, all right, fair enough. Uh, what are we listening to? Okay, so today is the Johnny Mitchell show because uh, that's because uh, I'm doing too many things at once to find another song. But it's good because it's all good. So this is gonna be the the tea leaf prophecy, and we're gonna be right back in two three minutes here on the Green. And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. As well, I want to just do a quick note that if, uh, any listener there was thinking, hey, that wasn't Joni Mitchell's voice. She was technically still on that track. <laughs> now for the important business to the studio. Stefan and Dave, take it away. I like that. Uh, important important Joni update. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, and thanks again, of course, uh, Sabrina Bowman from uh, Green Pack for joining us previously. And we are now in a studio. It's been a packed show. Uh, with Kim D'Oliveira from uh, for, as our resident uh, circular economy expert is Hi, uh, how I'm going. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, so we've got a couple stories that relate uh, just all circular economy stuff, uh, and we're starting with uh, Apple in the retro repair. So Dave, take it away. So everything I'm going to say has a bunch of different names, and I'm going to mispronounce all of them. So that's fine. Great. So last week, uh, Apple announced the departure of its longtime chief design officer Joni Ive. Jason Keebler, writing for Vice Magazine, took the opportunity to reflect on Ives' legacy, uh, one which saw Apple products become thinner, sleeker, and more minimalist, while at the same time becoming less repairable and less sustainable. Keebler argues that Ives, who oversaw Apple's meteoric rise to a $1 trillion stock valuation and is often called a genius by the technology and finance media, will be judged harshly by history, in part due to, his environmental, due to the environmental cost of his product design choices. 
In May, Vice published an article criticizing AirPods, Apple's wireless headphones, for the fact that they can be neither recycled nor thrown away, as the lithium-ion batteries are a fire hazard for waste sites and yet are glued into the plastic enclosure, making them impossible to repair or recycle. As Apple products have simultaneously become less repairable uh, through such design innovations as inventing their own unique screw heads so that customers cannot unscrew and repair their computers, or gluing parts into place that cannot be removed without destroying them, Apple has lobbied hard against right-to-repair laws in the U.S. and Europe. Its efforts have so far helped to kill at least one right-to-repair law in New York State last year. While the information and communication technologies industry is currently responsible for about 1.5% of worldwide carbon emissions, professors Lotfi Belkir and Ahmed Al-Maligi of McMaster University predict the, university's, predict the industry's carbon footprint could grow to as much as 14% by 2040, which is, the current foot, which is the current total footprint of the transportation industry. Furthermore, computers and mobile phones use dozens of semi-precious metals which are often mined by companies with poor environmental records, in countries with poor workers' rights protections, in conflict zones, and often in the face of strong resistance by local and indigenous groups. Right-to-repair laws like the one Ontario Liberal MPP Michael Coteau introduced earlier this year would force companies like Apple to reduce the environmental impact of their products, at the same time saving customers money and annoyance. Furthermore, many of the proposed uh, right-to-repair bills affect not just the information and, and communication uh, technology industry, but also automobiles, farming equipment, and other consumer durables like washing machines. The BBC reported in January of this year that between 2004 and 2012, the proportion of major household appliances that died within five years more than doubled, from 3.5% to 8.3%, and, as almost everyone knows, you're lucky to get five years out of an iPhone. At the end of last year, Apple CEO Tim Cook wrote a letter to investors blaming lower iPhone sales projections on the fact that more users are repairing their iPhones instead of buying new ones. His comments are no revelation since companies like Apple uh, make their money through make a lot of money through creating these unsustainable, unrepairable products that become obsolete very quickly. In May of this year, a poll conducted by Innovative Research Group found that 75% of those surveyed supported right-to-repair legislation, while only 3% opposed. If this polls any indication, Joni Ives and Apple in Incorporated may not be remembered for their sexiness of their gadgetry, but rather the vast amounts of toxic, obsolete tech garbage left for future generations to deal with. The uh, I, I like the the, the toxic uh, tech garbage. Um, that's so, Chris Moray right there. Yes, Chris Moray. Yeah. Um, so thanks so much, Chris, for that. Uh, so yeah, so that, that's a as an intro to to circuit economy stuff. I think is you know, so. Uh, what do you pull from that? What's your thoughts? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, if we can't repair today, then we can't, it'll be harder to salvage um, mm. when it eventually becomes toxic waste. Um, so this is a problem for consumers in the short term, and it is also a long-term strategy to make the valuable materials that Chris mentioned um, even more difficult to access and recapture the value from. Um, but this is a strategy that, you know, this business model is sort of ubiquitous. The idea that um, companies gain uh, profitability by continuing continually selling new products. Um, and in the face of, you know, sort of consumers wanting to uh, have more long-term or 
more, you know, better quality products. More and more companies are turning to things like gluing um, to both cut costs, which is also part of the strategy, uh, to cut costs and also to um, shorten the lifespan of, of many uh, consumer durables, uh, as you mentioned, uh, washing machines down to toasters, vacuums, all sorts of, of tech gadgets. Yeah, and, and, and I feel like that's that type of... Um, the type of that type of, of competition um, uh, to like we experience we're experiencing like the one of my favorite examples of the, of the you know of, of, of the Toronto Tool Library has this whole thing about a hammer um, uh, and about how the hammer gets used for roughly 15 minutes of its entire life like you buy a hammer use it for 15 minutes and then you never use and then you throw it out and that's like that's the average lifespan of actually use of this thing right um, and and then that question is like okay so what you're, you're designing is you're designing for a hammer for to last for 15 minutes so you don't design a very good hammer you know well yeah if you want to keep the price as low as possible because that's sort of the the appeal right the, you buy the lower if you only need it for 15 minutes ever will you go for something that lasts indefinitely or will you go for something very um, uh, more affordable yeah yeah and we and and then you create things that then, of course, you know, what's interesting about it is that you sort of experience this, um, this, this change in the shift in society, really, uh, of, of how much we feel and how good we feel about uh, things that last for a while. Right. Like the things that th- like, you know, the we, we've gone from a durable set of toolkits being proof of it being very good to these are old tools. Why haven't you bought a new drill recently, right? Right. That's also another thing is, is part of this premature obsolescence idea that's sort of something that the circular economy wants to do away with. It's like, it's it's a fashionable thing to something to be obsolete before its time. It's also, of course, a business strategy. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is a race to the bottom. Like everyone just sort of keeps, if your competitor is making things with glue and they're saving money doing so, then you have to as well to keep your cost competitive. And of course, sell more new products to us. Yeah. And of course, uh, before we get to the, uh, uh, the next one, I think I want to sort of, I think often this sort of, it's part of what we're hoping to do with, with you coming on the show is, is to make this a little more real for people and, and sort of how we right. can, how it can, how people can experience it. And also like the idea that like, it's not a high food thing. It, it's happening in places. So, right. so I'm curious if you talk about like where, where are some places in this world where, where we have seen some defenses uh, of the right to repair? Well, there is legislation, but you, you brought up a great example, which is the tool library. Mm-hmm. And the tool library represents a really accessible idea, which is the idea of using a product as a service. So you don't need a hammer. You need the service of hammering at intervals um, of time. Similarly, we could we could take that from the Toronto Tool Library saying, hey, let's share these resources because we don't need them all the time, to the idea of a company like Apple providing us with the service of, of you know, a wireless device um, where they maintained uh, ownership for and responsibility of the device. Um, and then, of course, you used it for the service of, you know, whatever we do with our phones these days, all the things. Um, and then you returned it to Apple once it was no, uh, no longer functional. Once it was, became obsolete or at a set time, you would actually, and, and then Apple or whomever the sector or company was, could actually reuse the resources in the device to either refurbish it, which is a much more effective strategy in terms of envir- for environmental reasons. Alternatively, they could you know, upgrade it, make it more fashionable. Um, and you know, well, and faster, right? The n- number one thing that's changing is just the, is the, is truly the, and is thinner and lighter, yeah. and and but that's gonna there's gonna be an, a sort of a, a limit to that as well, yeah, right? Course, yeah. So, um, yeah. So there's the idea of a product as a service, which is you know I think, and also it, it sort of creates loyalty. I mean, we all love the the OS interfaces, but if you had a company that offered you the service of a phone that you 
you know, got to use and then and sent back, you sort of would sort of stick with them, I think, over time. So there's an alternative there, um, an alternative business model that I think has uh, lots of traction. Yeah. And, and I think this is uh, I want to briefly circle into this into a slight uh, a conversation that's being had uh, right now around the Green New Deal, um, which is which is this conversation about how much there's a sort of this one of the sort of criticisms of this plan is is really how much um, that um, really how much you need the the sort of the the the, the mercury and the and the, the the sort of special the special metals that exist mm-hmm. and and how important these special metals are for a lot of these types of plants you right. know a lot of these you know the batteries and stuff like that these are really really quite these these particular metals and and so the criticism is like well all you're, you're, what you're doing is you're exporting more more mining companies to get these precious metals that's that's that that is you know putting undue hardship on these other places and so that's so like the green new deal can't be done this way and I think one of my answers consistently is that is why you need some more of these the, the, these responses of okay well let's find a way to get them back you know let's 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 not be a constant throw it out we have you know we have these precious metals in our devices which we are now throwing out yeah. and and there's other ways to keep them really. in a circular economy uh, our resources aren't just what's left in the ground they're everything that's all around us mm-hmm. everything that we've ever made everything that we use every day these are all resources not just what's left to be extracted from the earth yeah so it's, uh, I, I think we have enough time to get through this let's Let's try to get to it. Um, uh, to, to Speaking of things that are all around us, plastic. Last weekend, state leaders attending the G20 meetings in Osaka adopted Japan's pledge to reduce additional marine plastic waste to zero by 2050. For their part, Japan has released the Marine Initiative, which seeks to realize, the goal, realize this goal through a number of methods. Now, this is from the Japanese uh, government website. These include providing official development assistance to developing countries develop, to develop capacities and, and institutions for waste management, including recycling facilities, uh, promote international operations by Japanese companies, NGOs, and local governments to facilitate the export of waste management and recycling infrastructure and technology, and disseminate and share best practices of waste management through international conferences. While environmental organizations like the World Wildlife Fund applauded the declaration as a first meaningful step, they also underscored the need for further urgent action. Even as a first step, however, some activists like Yukihiro Misawa, plastics policy manager at the World Wildlife Fund Japan, fear the declaration focuses too much on waste management while saying nothing of reducing plastics production. While the EU has voted to eliminate certain single-use plastics by 2021, Japan is the world's second largest consumer of plastic behind the U.S. and is still considering a bill to charge customers for plastic bags. A Reuters article on the declaration quotes energy consultant Jeff Brown saying, quote, if the world goes the direction of European targets, some markets can go from high growth to low growth or no growth. Profits could suffer. Indeed, petrochemical companies around the world seem to be banking on an increase in plastic production, with $200 billion in investments in the U.S. alone going toward production of new facilities relying on fracked U.S. shale gas. In Asia, leading petrochemical companies are also investing billions of dollars into new infrastructure and facilities. The International Energy Agency predicts a 20% increase in carbon emissions from petrochemical and plastics manufacturing over the next decade in a report released last October. It is therefore some cause for concern that following the declaration, the American Chemistry Council, a lobbying group for plastics manufacturers, gushed about the news. 
Uh, Steve Russell, vice president of the council plastics of the of the council's plastic division, said, "Quote: America's plastic makers welcome the G20's Osaka Blue Ocean vision to end plastic leakage into the ocean. Plastics offer numerous environmental benefits, such as helping to conserve resources and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Lightweight, efficient plastics can help the world's growing population live more sustainably. But we need to do a better job of capturing and repurposing used plastics to create a more circular economy while continuing to meet society's needs." End quote. Neil Tangri, Global Plastics Policy Advisor at the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives in Berkeley, said of the G20 statement, quote, ultimately this is very disappointing, and there is a misconception that we can recycle our way out of this. Plastic is a problem you need to tackle at the source. All right. The, uh, the speed, speed information coming at you. We've got three minutes left. Uh, first thoughts to you. Well, I love the last sentence, which is there's a misconception that we can recycle our way out of this. Uh, that is sort of pervasive. Recycling is a last resort end of pipe solution that attempts to transform products that were designed to become waste into, uh, you know, a valuable sort of product um, and a source of value to someone somewhere sometime. Um, that is not yet known. It's sort of, this is the cause of leakage into the ocean. We, we're sort of running this assumption that we can create value from these these products or, or materials that were designed to be waste in the first place. Well, and also when you, you think about how much you get plastics, particularly that are recyclable, but once, right? Like you get, you, you can use it one more time and then, oh, it's recyclable. And would you want to use it? Right. I mean, are, is this the, you know, is, does the input that you speak of compare to a virgin material? Is it going to cost you more? What is the, the, the benefit there? Is it, is it going to be contaminated? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, and so you get this, you, you, you constantly find this thing. So we have, with about a minute left, yeah. uh, what would sort of your, uh, if, if, you know, like plastics, yeah. get rid of it entirely? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I mean, no, I think there's a lot of changes that we can make at the extraction, production and consumption levels. And maybe I'll come back and we can chat more about that. Yeah. Um, but I think that in this um, case, um, I, I want to get to the consumer level, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, single use in Canada, you know, the federal government is looking to eliminate single use sort of supplementary items, plastic bags, straws, etc. But a lot of the branded items that we are, are frankly, uh, use every day and are kind of addicted to these convenient size plastic products, those are not um, under under scrutiny, those things, single use yogurts, etc. you know, right. the single use juices. Um, so if I can give one tip to folks listening, it's going to be a little contentious, but <laughs> choose PET one, choose clear plastic that is uh, transparent, not branded, whenever possible, if you need to reach for a convenience item, choose clear plastic and, uh, you know, something that can be actually effectively recycled that has secondary markets in Canada, in Ontario, in North America, we, we can actually use this stuff. Oh, that's a, that, honestly, that's the most useful uh, uh, tip we've given people in probably years. That's great. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, this has been the show. Uh, we'll be back next week with a full hour-long interview with Amara Pasan uh, from our time. Uh, have a great green week, everyone, uh, and we'll see you all real soon.